Okay. Welcome to the show, our first episode, and we'll be doing some intros, a little explanation for the reason for this podcast, quick travel story, our topic of the week is safety, and then we'll close with some key takeaways and a few breaths or two. So I'll kick us off. I'm M, which is short for Emily, uh, but I just like the energy of M, short and fun. Uh, I also go by Fabs, which is short for my last name, Fabiashi. And who I am, I would say at the very core, is a being of peace and light. Uh, I often am told people feel more peaceful or lighter, brighter after they interact with me. But that doesn't really tell you anything about who I am in my body, how that body experiences the world. Uh, so I'm 35. I'm a cisgender woman. I'm queer. For me, that means being attracted to people of all different genders. I am white. My ancestors all come from Europe. They all immigrated here on their own volition um, around 1890 to 1910 period. I am... A devoted friend, sister, aunt, daughter. I think my life purpose, sort of God's plan for me, uh, what I'm meant to do here in the world in this body is to be a sort of translator or bridge builder between different groups of people. And I am most myself when I am in water or dancing or writing or facilitating things um, between people. So that is me, M, and I'll pass it over to my conversation partner, Catherine, to introduce yourself. Hi, I am Catherine, and I'm going to go with Kate. I've been playing with the idea of going with Kate for a while also because I like that energy. Uh, yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I am an entrepreneur and a doer and a builder. I get really excited about uh, seeing a vision come to fruition in a very tangible way. Uh, I am So I am very, very much of this world. Um, and while I have um, great aspirations to have a better connection with the spiritual world, um, it's something that I am working on every single day. I am also a cisgendered woman. I am the granddaughter of immigrants from Eastern Europe, from Ukraine, uh, who came over in the uh, post-World War II sort of mess and so deeply appreciative to what they did in order for them to have and their family to have a future where we have choice and where we live in a society where that is much, much more free, despite all of our problems, uh, I would mm -hmm. always have chosen to be born here uh, than, than where my grandparents were from. I love to laugh and host people. Uh, I love to sail, and I'm just a big, big nature lover. Uh, and a an admirer of M, who I've known for about five years now. And mm -hmm. when she said she was going to be taking a journey, I 
I was really hoping she would share uh, what she's experiencing on a semi-live basis. So we plotted the idea of having a show where we just have a casual conversation uh, about what she's been up to as she goes through a great journey across the United States. Wonderful. Well, thank you for the idea <laughs> and for being my conversation <laughs> partner. Um, so just to let everybody in on the trip, um, about a year ago, around September, October 2020, I got what I call a download, uh, which is like how I get messages from the universe, from God, from source, whatever you call it. It's sort of like I don't know this thing, and then a second later, I just know it, and it's like in the core of my being as if a laptop didn't have a file, and then a second later, you put a zip drive in, and the file is on there. So I got this download during a prayer meditation session that I needed to make a big life change and leave the organization, which I had worked at at that point for six years. This was a year ago and that I had helped build and shape and that was such a big part of my identity and where I love the people and the work and go on this trip and talk to people about ending racism, building a more liberated society and try to find people doing that work at the intersection of really practical work, which is more uh, what the organization I used to work at a nonprofit did working with governments on programs, policies, trying to look at disparities in outcomes across race and gender and other things and, and end those disparities. So there's a very practical side of me that loves that kind of work and resource redistribution and reparations and all those very practical things. And as I said, there's this other part of me that is very spiritual and that feels like there's a whole energetic component to this work around rebalancing sun and moon energy and somatic abolition and, and all sorts of things. So the download was basically, you need to leave your organization, you need to leave San Francisco, you need to go talk to people. The details sort of came over time, um, but I was able to give people a lot of advance notice, <laughs> you know, a year's notice that I was leaving my roommates, my landlords. Um, and so now I'm on that journey I've been through California, um, starting in San Francisco, where I was living for the past seven years, and then, you know, doing camping with you and our other friend near Mount Shasta and going to Big Sur and San Luis Obispo, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Bernardino, and now I'm in Arizona. So again, looking for people, you know, doing work to end racism, build a more liberated society, but with a spiritual and practical lens. Um, and so many people asked to hear about the journey and what I was learning and what I was thinking about. So super grateful to you for, for coming up with this idea, Kate, of us doing the podcast and just chatting <laughs> every week about, about how it's going. And I right now am in you know, what we call the Sedona Cottonwood area. And this area used to be occupied by the Yavapai Apache Nation. And so each stop that I go to, 
I have a morning gratitude practice where I give gratitude to all my ancestors so that, you know, my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents that I talked about, um, as many ancestors as I could sort of call, call to mind or call into feeling. I give gratitude to the ancestors of past lives, um, even though I don't know who those people are exactly, just sort of sending that gratitude out. And I also give gratitude to the stewards of the land that I'm on. So, you know, the in particular, the indigenous people. If you have any interest in that, there's a great website uh, called nativeland.ca um, where you can learn a little bit about the indigenous people um, whose land you're on at any place in North America and just a bit about, you know, their rights and sovereignty and what's happened. So for me, each spot that I go to, I try to do a little bit of that research so that when I'm doing that morning gratitude practice, I have some sense. Absolutely. And, and um, you've been traveling for a few weeks now uh, and hit a couple of places. So would love to hear um, uh, anyone who's as a you know, joining joining this for the first time, what have you done and how long has it taken? And tell us about how you got where you are today. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically done California, a bunch of spots in California. My last day at work was late September, mid to late September. And I've basically been traveling since then. I did and fully leave my apartment until mid-October. That's when my subletters moved in. But I did a few trips, uh, yeah, at the end of September and beginning of October. Um, I've just seen so much beautiful so, nature. Yeah. So about for your, you've been four to six weeks on the road-ish at this point. Yes. Yes. That's right. So we're going to condense the most impactful experiences and thoughts of your four to six weeks right now. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how condensed I can make it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think, you know, I've had lots of great conversations with people in each of these spots that I stopped in, in California. But I think the place that really stuck out to me in terms of, stimulating conversation was Los Angeles. So I was able to meet up with a former coworker, um, was able to meet up with a friend of my mom's and their child, um, also a former client, a, a government partner uh, that I used to work with, or actually she's at a nonprofit. And, you know, each of these people had ideas, wanted to talk about these topics, um, I also think it's really interesting the people who are not as interested in racial justice and thinking about things with a practical and spiritual lens, how they react to when I tell them that little blurb of like, what am I doing with my trip? And, you know, some people ask a lot of follow-up questions. Some people, I think, maybe get overwhelmed by it or don't want to touch the subject and sort of just <laughs> politely move on to a different subject. Uh, but a really interesting conversation I had was in Los Angeles, I was staying at a spiritual center, the particular 
lineage of yoga that I'm in, they have a center in LA where there's rooms that people can stay in. And, you know, I was able to stay there for a while and like teach classes as part of my service to the center and cook some meals. And the Swami who runs that center, a Swami is basically like a monk in the yoga sacred tradition. They're, they're a renunciate. They've given up all their material possessions. They don't have any sort of romantic relationships. Um, she put me in touch with a student at the center and the student is a yoga teacher herself. She's a black woman. She has tons of really cool jobs. And we had a whole conversation about, you know, how problematic yoga can be. And, you know, there were lots of things around the colonization of yoga that I already knew. And then there were a lot of hard questions that she posed around, you know, should we be using Sanskrit as much as we do? And, you know, should we even be practicing yoga because it came from a caste system that was very oppressive? Um, and so, you know, having conversations like that where it's like you leave with far more questions than answers are really exciting to me. And so that was after class one day we had this conversation and you know, there was also another day after class where I talked to a student and told them about my trip and they said, oh, you you might be going to Arizona. You should check out this other ashram. And I never would have known about this ashram had this student not told me about it. And she said, it's not really open to the public right now, but you could email the Swami who runs it. And I did, and that is what brought me to, to this particular area in Arizona. And the Swami was nice enough to pick me up at the train station and had studied with a few teachers that I studied with in India, both of us studied with in this like very remote part of India. So that was pretty cool to have that connection. And it was interesting. I got to the ashram and at dinner that night, everything at the ashram is communal. So dinner is totally communal. When you're at the ashram, you always have a roommate. Nothing is sort of your own. Everything is a shared community experience. I was talking about my trip and, you know, these conversations that I'm having. And in particular, you know, because I was at a yoga ashram, I started bringing up some of the questions that this woman in LA and I had talked about. And, you know, bringing it up in such a way as to say this woman, you know, she didn't think she had all the answers. We were both just like talking about questions and things that, that keep us up at night. And um, you could just feel the energy in the room sort of shift. <laughs> and like there was, I could feel from some people they were interested in these questions. And then I could feel from this other group of people that were like, I don't know who this girl is, who she thinks she is coming into our ashram, asking all these like questions that potentially put our whole belief system in question. Um, and it was just this very interesting moment of like, oh, did I step out of landmine? <laughs> I'm in this like yeah, yeah. community as this newcomer. Should I not have like yeah. brought up such questions on the first night? <laughs> Could you could you give us just a a little flavor of 
one or two of the types of questions or maybe describe your definition of colonization of yoga because it's it's easy for me to kind of go and imagine what what you mean by that but would love to hear from you uh, just a tiny tiny little tidbit about what kinds of questions you were you were bringing up that was make that were making people uncomfortable yeah yeah great great call so you know the usual conversations i hear about colonizing of yoga is yoga is a spiritual tradition it's you know the the postures the poses that we think of in western yoga studios are like a tiny tiny sliver of what is this amazing body of spiritual practices so the fact that the the poses the postures that are supposed to make you like skinny and fit that that gets all the the fame in in US and western yoga studios and the whole rest of it doesn't is a big critique you know the fact that a lot of white people are making a lot of money off of yoga or people of other races and ethnicities that have no uh, ancestors from from India, from the Indus River Valley region where yoga came from is another big critique. Um, you know, the particular so basically lineage. basically the, the famous yoga teacher dilemma, which always makes me laugh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like the Instagram. Like, oh, I must, exactly, yes. All right, so that so Instagram that, influencer that little, yoga mm-hmm. teacher, <laughs> exactly, yeah, with the with the perfect poses on the beach, and um, you know, just just to throw something out there, if if even one percent of the people who start yoga through that very diluted uh, version of it come to learn about other parts of yoga and embrace them. How would that is isn't there an argument that yeah maybe there is some you know a lot of colonization of yoga and yet uh, could there not be a greater good that comes out of it? Yeah, yeah, I I think that's a great question. I think you know there's a lot of people who make a lot of money off of running teacher trainings, yoga teacher trainings, you know, and and I do think they have some responsibility to really talk about India and talk about, you know, the, the much bigger um, vastness of the yogic tradition that is not just the poses, you know, so I do think anyone making money off of a yoga teacher training has a responsibility, you know, to really understand the roots of yoga and, and talk about it and that any teacher teaching, you know, should try to bring up India and and all of that as much as possible. Um, I found yoga at at a New York sports club, <laughs> at like a you know fitness gym, um, and you know I've had conversations when I've studied in India, you know, with with swamis who have never done a posture in their life, <laughs> like they have studied the the real essence of yoga since they were like 20 and they're now 80 and they've said yoga is for everyone. You know, I've asked this exact question, like can a white person teach yoga to them who have never done a posture, have only like studied the scriptures and tried to like live this way of life. And their answer is yes. 
um, you know, but to do it with, with a reverence and, and with an understanding of the greater whole and, you know, if possible, do it without charging money, you know, do donation-based classes or uh, find some other way to, to think about the capitalistic side of it a little bit differently. I think for me personally, I've always felt like maybe I didn't have to dig into that colonization piece as much just because the lineage I'm a part of does not focus on the postures very much. It very much focuses on the the rest of the yogic system. It focuses on how you live day to day, what your actions and words are. Um, it you don't get paid as a teacher in my lineage. Like all of your teaching is of service. So I think there was this part of me that was like, well, I'm just exempt, <laughs> kind of from that conversation and you know this woman had questions about the whole yogic system coming out of the caste system in India which is a very oppressive system and you know for a long time yoga only being for for people of the upper caste um, and again I think there's a part of me that's like oh well the lineage I'm a part of like the guru opened it to everyone and you know didn't make it about the caste um, but I also think anytime someone raises questions and you haven't really dug into them, you know, because you feel like you're exempt for all these different reasons, you know, the sort of excuses I give, it's like, okay, that's actually probably a place that I do need to investigate more. Um, some people call that shadow work. It's like the idea that if there are questions that you haven't asked yet and they seem really scary, maybe those are the ones to, to spend a little time on, to not have them be in the dark and to shine some light on them, you know, in a compassionate way, not in a way of like, you know, by by doing free yoga classes or, or not getting paid for the classes that I teach. I'm some horrible person, but just, you know, asking questions and not being afraid of asking questions. And I think that's what I felt in that room in the living room, sitting on the floor, eating dinner with all these other white folks is like, there were folks who were like, hmm, interesting. I want to think about those questions. And then there were folks who were like, danger, danger. Who is this stranger <laughs> bringing up all of these uncomfortable <laughs> questions? Like, why are you bringing this into our space? Um, so that that was just an interesting experience. And of course I said to them, like, I'm paraphrasing, like, please look up this woman's work. And I, you know, gave her website and all of that. Um, and again, that these are just questions. Like she wasn't saying that she knows everything on these topics. So that, that yeah. was a very interesting experience. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds powerful. So tell us a bit about, where is the bridge between this shadow question and the topic of today, which is safety? Ooh, good question. So safety is something that anytime I do a big trip like this, and I know you have done a lot of solo traveling as well as a woman, you've probably gotten this question a lot as well, which is, do you feel safe doing this trip on your own? Are you sure you should be doing this on your own? 
Um, so I think wrapped up in safety, there are all these questions about who gets harmed more than other people, whose safety do we prioritize more than other people, what does it mean to feel uncomfortable versus actually unsafe. So as I started on this journey and the more I've like, told people about it, so many different people have asked me, do you feel safe as a solo female traveler? So I think that's where, where the shadow work comes in is like there are these questions behind that question that mm -hmm. are dark, you know, they have to do with assaults against women and gender nonconforming people and murders and kidnaps and dark stuff that, you know, we are going to delve into a little bit, not super deep, but if you have experienced any of that stuff and you want to stop listening now, totally get that. If you haven't experienced that stuff and those topics just make you uncomfortable, that is that is the sort of shadow work. That is like maybe keep listening and it'll be okay. But again, if if you've experienced, you know, assault, sexual assault, you know, anything around that realm and you don't want to listen, also totally understand. Great. Thank you for for clarifying that. You know, that the question of do you feel safe traveling as a woman, I have gotten that one a lot of times. And uh I remember very distinctly this time I was um I was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and there was just this section I was uh I did the I've done lots of solo hiking, but this trip I did with my husband. And, but we would hike apart, you know, a couple miles apart, mm -hmm. and then we'd reconnect and that sort of thing. And there was this one section of trail in, I think it was in Oregon or Washington, but most likely Oregon. Uh, it, no, it was Washington. doesn't matter. And there were quite a few dirt roads that were crisscrossing the trail at this point. And so much of the trail is remote, and I feel really safe in remote areas because it's really mm. hard to access. But as right. soon as you introduce proximity with cars, it starts getting a little bit different. And yeah. I remember walking along this section, and there was a car that was um, about one or 200 feet above me. The, the road was parallel with the trail. And this car was going really, really slowly. Mm -hmm. And... I started panicking because my yeah. husband was uh, two or three miles ahead of me. There's no, there was no one around. Nobody would hear me. I don't have a very loud voice. My and my head goes into this tailspin of like, why are these creepy people, you know, here? I don't know what they were doing. They probably didn't even see me, to be honest. Right. And the the thing that came into my head was well, two things. One one was. You do need to keep your wits about you, but really, I don't know what I would do if, if there were an actual intent for assault. But the yeah. second thing that came into my head is, where is this fear coming from? Mm -hmm. Because I just feel like it's a societal trap to make me scared so that I don't do things like this. It, yeah. This sort of this narrative is not that things don't happen, but I just felt like that for me, particularly who has not experienced anything personally traumatic and who's done a lot of traveling, 
why should I be having these fears? Because it's not coming from my lived experience, which means it's coming from stories and narratives that I've heard elsewhere. And I just got like so angry. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe that I've internalized all this stuff. Um, Well, at the same time, for somebody, you know, that's not to dismiss that there are actual and many uh, real situations where you aren't safe. And yet, I think the vast majority of assaults happen with people who are known to you, not with strangers. So anyway, all those different exactly. thoughts were jumbling in exactly. my head. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what I love about not telling you what I have planned for the episode. <laughs> all I told you was the word safety. And yes, very, very similar thoughts. So yes, I think the both and is true of you need to be aware of your surroundings. And there is this big narrative around stranger danger that is told to women and girls, I think specifically, um, to maybe discourage us from doing things on our own. Um, I don't think people telling these stories are always doing it with that intent in mind. But if you tell people over and over and over, like there are just strangers around every corner <laughs> who are going to like, yeah, you should, jump out you and should be scared. Mm-hmm. You should be scared um, is of course yeah. going to sink in. And, you know, I also think there's a huge amount of media around um, what are they called? true crime podcasts and movies, you know, that just sort of take these instances that that do unfortunately happen of a stranger, you know, hurting a a woman or girl or non-binary person, but it just blows it way out of proportion for how often that actually happens. So I think the both end is true of like women and girls and non-binary people do experience more violence against them, more bodily harm than men do. So that is true. Like the data does show that. But the deeper dive into that data, like you were saying, is who is actually perpetrating that harm? Is it just strangers if you're, you know, wanting to travel? You know, strangers are the big thing to be afraid of. Or is it people that you know? So because I'm a nerd, (laughs) I did a bunch of like (laughs) research on the numbers and there isn't great data. I did find some from like the Department of Justice. I found some on JSTOR, which is where there's a lot of academic articles. But basically what I could find is there's 80% of, you know, assaults and kidnapping and murder, like all of that sort of harm that happens to women. I didn't find good data around non-binary people, but to women, 80% of that harm happens from people they know. So that's friends, family, coworkers, spouses, someone you're dating, an acquaintance, you know, someone you meet at a bar, someone who you've like talked to and interacted with. 80% is coming from that group only 20% is coming from a complete stranger. So four times. To, to be honest, much. that actually surprises me that 20% is, that it is even 20%. And that that just shows that I didn't do my research. But yeah, that's, 
20% seems like a lot more than I would expect from that number. And it might be less because, like, the studies the studies yeah. do vary, and there's, you know, there's a lot of variation within that around age and race and all sorts of things. Um, so let's just say on the conservative end, <laughs> the, sure. the yeah. group yeah. you need to be more worried about, like, at least four times more worried about is the people that you know. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that certainly rings true to my own experience. Like, luckily, I've never experienced any of the really traumatic stuff we're talking about. But in terms of people, you know, not getting consent from me, you know, for sexual boundaries and things of that nature, um, you know, it's always been people that fall into that first group friends, people I'm dating, people that, you know, are an acquaintance, like, those are the people that are like, oh, she's blacked out, whatever, or no, doesn't really mean no. Um, So I think as a woman traveling, and this isn't the first big trip I've done, I've just sort of always known that in my bones, like, I didn't even need the data, that, like, you you know, are sometimes safer alone than in the company of people that you might know. Obviously, not everyone is like that. You know, there's lots of people who very much care about the safety of women, but there's also lots of people who don't understand consent and, you know, don't always treat women the best they should. So, you know, my takeaway from all of this is just, If you have, you know, if you're a woman, if, you know, you have a woman in your life who wants to travel on her own, don't try to scare her (laughs) with these stories. Like, (laughs) encourage her to be aware of her surroundings, um, you know, to, to know, to have thought through some of these situations and what they would do, you know, because we've all been in those situations where, like, what you were describing, you do get scared, um, I had one of my first road trip stops in, in San Luis Obispo. I was staying at a motel and there were like two cars at the motel when I checked in when it was light out. And then I went walking around and got dinner. And when I got back to the motel, it was completely dark out and there was not a single car in the parking lot. And I realized like if someone were to drive by and my light is on, they'll realize like I am the only person in this motel and I don't have a car, and, you know, and all of a sudden, my mind started spinning, and I had to be like, wait a second, (laughs) (laughs) these are the stories, you know, do, you know, take care of yourself, lock the door, you know, Um, yeah, but you'll be fine. Um, And then, you know, the stories that don't get out there are also the stories of the things that didn't happen, so, right, for uh, so when I um I was I spent some time in West Africa in the early 2000s and I had gone up north away from the big city and was was going to meet a friend and through and this was before phones were very reliable and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff and 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 like I couldn't I couldn't find him he wasn't his house was locked and you know uh, I was I was kind of at a loss and I had a couple of words scribbled on my little notepad and uh and these guys at this little coca-cola stand were like oh is that you know like can can we help you and 
And they said, oh, well, you have a phone number. Okay, well, we'll take you to a phone booth. So I get on the back of this guy's motorcycle, and he mm-hmm. takes me about half a mile away to a phone booth. And we're in the city, and I feel totally fine about that. Um, yeah. I try calling my friend. The phone's not working. And he sees my little scribble. And he's like, oh, is that is that where your friend is? I know where that is. I'll take you there. I'm like, okay, well, he took me to the phone booth. That's great. And I get on the back of his motorcycle, and, like, it starts getting darker and darker, and the city is further and further behind us. And this is already a pretty small town. Yeah. Like, within five minutes, we're in the middle of, you know, these tall grass fields on a dirt road, and there is not anyone else in sight. And I'm just thinking, like, oh, my God. Like, this was really stupid of me. How could I have done this? Right. Why am I so stupid and trusting? You know, this is right. like this is gonna this is not good. And then and then I thought, you know what? I can't do anything about this right now. <laughs> so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna yep. hope for the best at this point because freaking out is not gonna do me any good. Uh, and lo and behold, in a mile or two, this beautiful warm light uh, was kind of you know around the corner, and there was this traditional kind of style uh, place with beautiful lighting and it was like a cool bar you know where all the cool mm. kids were hanging out <laughs> and my friend was hanging out on the roof deck up there and uh and that was just one of of many experiences where i you know the vast majority of people are just good and wanting yeah. wanting to help out uh, including, by the way, the the bush taxi guy who tra- tracked me down because I had left my camera in his car. So he, mm-hmm. while I'm running around the motorcycle, he's like going from point to point. Like, did you see where she went? And like following me around so he could deliver the camera back to me. I mean, these are the stories that don't get out there because they don't make the headlines. The headlines are right. so much more interesting when they're fear-based. Right. Exactly. And I think that brings us to the next sort of question to investigate is who, like within women as a group and non-binary folks, like within that, which groups of women do we prioritize their safety and do we really care about and whose stories do we tell, you know, when something bad does happen? So, the camping trip that we went on a few weeks ago, uh, you had dropped me off and our friend at her house. And then I was taking an Uber from her house back to my house. And the Uber driver picked me up and was curious, you know, what we were doing. And I said, oh, you know, my friend and I, we just went camping. Our other friend dropped us off. And he was shocked. (laughs) He was like, you, he, he was Filipino and had just moved to the U.S. within the last few years. And our other friend um, is of Asian ancestry. And so he was like, you, as a small girl and that little Asian girl, you went camping by yourself, you know, and, and went into the whole safety thing. So I gave him the facts of like, actually, we're way more safe. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's really people that you know that women should be afraid of. <laughs> um, and if, if we yeah, as a society yeah. really care about women, we would end domestic violence and, and intimate yeah. partner and, you know, 
all of that, um, date rape and, and all of that, people that you know hurting you. Um, and he was like, oh, wow, like I've never heard those facts. Like, thank you for sharing that. And he thought about it for a second. And then a few straights later, he said, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's this woman on a road trip and she's gone missing and they think it's her boyfriend. So you're right. Like it is someone who she knew, you know, who harmed her. And this is, you know, is a terrible story, tragedy. But immediately what my mind thought is like, I don't know anything about this story. I don't watch the news, but I bet this is a white woman. Like that's immediately where my head went. Like, she is probably an attractive white woman. So I Googled it, and sure enough, you know, she was, and and unfortunately, um, you know, she was murdered, and I haven't really followed it, but it seems like it was the boyfriend. And, you know, and I could sort of see the, the Uber driver putting all the pieces together of like, oh, yeah, she probably would have been safer if she had just gone with a friend like what you all did than, than with the partner. Um and, you know, so that just led me down this whole train of, like, whose stories when harm does happen, um, because we haven't solved all of this harm that's happening against women, whose stories get told, you know. And so when people are asking, do I feel safe, um, I'm like, yeah, I I am sort of the the demographic that gets protected the most. I'm white. I'm relatively young. I'm cisgender, um, you know, I don't have any disabilities, I have nice clothes, you know, I'm I'm of like upper middle class. So I just think that's another question that we don't like to think about a lot, which is until we have this liberated society where no one is being harmed anymore, um, or women and men, you know, there's not this drastic difference between how many women are being harmed versus men you know, how, how do we tell the stories of, of people and, you know, the data point that I found really shocking. And again, data around assaults and and kidnappings and all these things are sometimes underreported. It's hard to like look across groups of people. But one thing I found is it's somewhere between like three times and 10 times, um, indigenous women, girls, and two-spirits people, uh, like non-binary folks in the indigenous world, they go missing and are murdered at like three times to 10 times the rate of other racial groups. And it's just like their stories just don't get told the way that, that white women's stories do, to be honest. And when I think about like all the stories from my childhood, I heard of like bad things, kidnappings happening to girls and women, you know, it's just like a long list of white women. And I can't think of the names of any indigenous women or black women or women of color. You know, the demonization and the otherness that basically to, to treat another uh, human poorly, you put them in another category. This is, mm-hmm. has been done over and over again. That person isn't like me because of their religion, their, their ethnicity, uh, their gender. And so uh, if you dehumanize someone, it's easier to treat them poorly. 
Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that deep work, you know, of working with people, you know, who have those tendencies to want to other people and dehumanize them, you know, that that is such a huge piece of that work, you know, that, that I think particularly white folks can do with other white folks, you know, is is to to break down any of those dehumanizing tendencies um and and when we think about like building a society where everyone feels safe you know where everyone feels like they could go for a walk at night you know and and feel totally safe or yeah go on the pct like something you know very intense like that um when we design a society where everyone truly feels safe designing it for the people who maybe feel furthest from safety right now. Um, You know, there's this concept that we worked on at the nonprofit called human centered design, like design services, products, everything for the actual person who's going to use it and test it a bunch with them. And so I think about that a lot with like, designing a liberated society like if we design and if the designs are coming from the people who maybe are furthest from safety right now you know a a black trans woman um and and if we can create a society that's safe for them those of us who aren't as far from safety you know us as cisgender white women we also benefit like when we design for the extreme user, it's called in human centered design, like the person who right now is furthest from the outcome, then everybody wins. So I think about, you know, that concept a lot of like, how do we, how do we do that kind of designing of the society that we want to have? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that one. <laughs> but <laughs> one thing it does remind me of, though, is what well, two thoughts floating in my head. One is I, there's just great podcast, and I think it was actually on Hidden Brain, um, where he he highlighted a woman who was kind of living, you know, month to month. She had a job, but she was you know, really kind of living month to month. And when he, when she lost her job, uh, all sorts of difficulties ensued. Uh, and, and part of it is, you know, she, she used her credit card up and, or she got a credit card, she used it all up and then she couldn't get gas and couldn't get the next job, you know, sort of the, the cascade effect of mm. what happens when you don't have a cushion. And, right. and one of the, one of the decisions that, he, that, that she, that she in that moment she described this scenario where her boyfriend had gotten mad at her because there wasn't enough toilet paper in the house and so she bought she went to the store and she used her precious credit card um you know credit to buy up all sorts of home essentials without thinking about how she was going to pay for gas the next week mm-hmm. and that what happens in situations of insecurity is that you're really just your brain switches 
into moment-to-moment kind of living. And right. so if you think about the, you know, the psychological effect that just the feeling of basic security, you know, which is kind of like towards the bottom of, not quite the bottom, but pretty close to the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, right. If, if your very sense of security is threatened, even at sort of a low, a low volume every single day, uh, what kind of drag that is on your mm-hmm. ability to function and thrive and flourish um, in society. So it's, you know, it's an interesting concept to think of safety as something that, so that could, that could be even, even in the absence of a clear danger, even the, in the absence of a trauma, even in the absence of anything that's ever actually happened to you specifically, if you're in a category of people that does not feel safe, how much does that weigh on your human potential? How much does that right. weigh you down? Right. And then another thought I had, which is just a little more polemical, is, uh, you know, often we, we of the more liberal persuasion will say, well, isn't it just a shame that we can't, you know, see everybody as human um, and, you know, these awful people who dehumanize others and don't always realize when we are actually dehumanizing people who don't agree with us politically, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as an exercise, uh, it's very easy for me to, I mean, this is all, all over the politics of our country right now, very easy for me to dehumanize, for instance, the, the people who went into the Capitol on January 6th, um, in 2021 and created this riot. Um, and, and so an exercise in, in empathy uh, for, for us is to be able to look at those people with, with a non-dehumanized lens. Um, right. And that's, you know, it's just, it, it, it goes all ways, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's very easy to, to sit in a um, situation of, of privilege and liberalism and say what a shame it is that there are all these horrible people dehumanizing people of different ethnicities, races, genders, et cetera. Um, but what are we doing ourselves that we're not recognizing? Yeah. And I feel like that's a through line, you know, of so many different spiritual traditions and religion, you know, it's just like how how do you have true compassion and love for everyone, not just the people who agree with you politically or who look like yeah. you, you know, it's like how how do you truly come to every interaction with every human and interact with them in a way that is truly like a heart to heart connection. Um, it reminds me of this thing. One of, one of our former government clients said when I was talking to him a couple weeks ago in LA about this whole concept of my listening tour. And he said, I just, you know, I try to meet every person as if they are a king and queen king or queen of a nation 
you know, and, and as part of my spiritual practice, like I feel like I am a prince of God and I try to meet each person as if they are also a head of state and like to really treat each person as this sovereign head of a nation or if you don't like sort of nation building, but just like treat each person like you would want to be treated, I guess, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> to find, find that commonality, find that light in them. Yeah, it's the the essence of the golden rule. <laughs> it's so <laughs> simple in words and in the moment of passion and noise and distraction and biases and experiences just so difficult uh, to put into practice each and every time. And yet there are these moments where you catch yourself not treating someone respectfully and those are the most golden moments ever to be like no oh i just did that didn't i yeah and something that we talked about at the ashram a good amount and and that i try to think about a lot is what is that mix of compassion and accountability right so yes, we can follow the golden rule as best that we can and try to have compassion for everyone. And it's a both and people need to be held accountable for their actions. So, you know, in, in the case of the Capitol riots, like you can both have compassion and not dehumanize those people and hold them accountable. All right. Last big bucket of questions and again not that we're trying to answer <laughs> these questions but just investigate them a little bit pull them a little bit apart is um cultivating a discernment within your own body of what is unsafe versus what is just feeling uncomfortable so this is a concept we talk about a lot in yoga which is like if you're doing a breathing exercise or a meditation or a posture, you're probably going to be uncomfortable the first few times you do it. Maybe you're always going to be uncomfortable when you're doing it. That's sort of your growing edge. If you're just perfectly comfortable, you know, you're probably not growing much, but we never want you to be in pain. And so I think about that as like the pain piece as being, you know, truly unsafe, truly knowing that that harm is imminent versus just feeling uncomfortable. So this one I was thinking about because right before I left San Francisco, I was at a little gathering with a bunch of former coworkers and they were talking about, you know, trying, trying to find that discernment when walking around alone on the streets of San Francisco, um, particularly as women. And, you know, there, there are places in San Francisco where there are a lot of people who are in crisis, you know, they're unhoused, they're experiencing mental health crises, substance abuse crises, usually a mixture of the three. And, you know, you're making all these judgments, right? Like I find myself doing it. I walk around at night by myself all the time in San Francisco and in many cities. 
but I'm aware. I'm constantly sort of like looking, are there other people on this street? Do most of the people on the street seem like they're in crisis or do most of the people not seem like they're in crisis? Are, is it just one person coming at me or is it a group of people walking towards me? Does it look like the people walking towards me are women or does it look like they're men? You know, I'm just constantly making all these different judgment calls um, and trying to feel in my body, like, what is the difference between feeling uncomfortable versus unsafe? You know, and I, I would say I very rarely feel unsafe in San Francisco. Um, you know, I I think maybe like once or twice in the past year have I felt like that feeling of like maybe I shouldn't be on this street, you know, it just feels like there's lots of people in crisis and not many people who look like they're not in crisis, you know, and, and maybe I shouldn't have come into this community, right? Like I don't live in this neighborhood. Maybe I shouldn't have come into this neighborhood. I'm thinking about the Tenderloin specifically because I was walking through there at night alone a few weeks ago to go to this uh, art dance thing and, you know, just had to check myself and be like, okay, maybe you feel a little uncomfortable or unsafe, but you're actually fine in this moment. No one is harming you right now. And you're going to turn a couple streets and, and you're going to be back to a place where your body is not in that like heightened fight or flight mode. Um, you know, but certainly didn't have my headphones in, was just aware of my surroundings. And, you know, I just always think about, and there was no reason that I should ever be involving any sort of like law enforcement, right? Just because I might feel a little way, I don't need to be bringing that presence into this community, um, like I think about last summer after the murder of George Floyd and all the protests, I had a friend asking me a lot of questions because she knew, you know, that that I was into all this racial justice stuff. And she was like, you know, is it racist if I'm like walking on the street alone at night and a black man's coming towards me and I cross the road? Um and I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know what your body feels like in that moment. Um, I I also, crossing the road is not like the worst thing you could do. Like the worst thing you could do is then call the police on that man just because you don't recognize him and it's your neighborhood and, and you think that you're entitled to just call the police on anyone you don't recognize, you know? So I'm like, I can't fully answer that for you. For me, I typically don't cross the street just when one man is coming towards me, but also each person gives off a different energy. And, you know, I would more cross the street if it was like a group of men coming at me, (laughs) you know, but. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that. It's tricky because there is the energy that someone gives off. And then there is also, I feel like there's a lot of, um, like, media versions of energy that so like the stereotypical walk of um, 
of a black guy in a hoodie in a in a movie where he's up to no good, right? Right. Uh, so we're gonna associate that automatically with something unsafe when that like that doesn't necessarily have to mean that something unsafe. Um, right. I think you know I think context is such a big deal too. Yeah, I, I guess there's you know a couple things floating in my head. One is we we internalize a, so much knowledge. We're 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 getting so much information that, than we realize in every second, and so your your mind is constantly assessing potential threats. Um, but how much of that assimilation of that knowledge in your head is is like legitimately real versus coming from media portrayals. Right. Is like that. Nobody knows the answer to that question. Uh, But I, I find it so hard to believe studies that say that media exposure doesn't impact you or video games don't really impact kids, like all that kind of stuff. I'm like, ah, I don't know. I, you know, the, the way in which these kinds of studies in, are conducted, not terribly convincing to me. Um, and so I think the most that we can do is in those moments of, of starting to feel, you know, that fear, try to analyze it and say, huh, yes. where, where, what exactly could that be coming from? And there's this great story at the beginning of one of Malcolm Gladwell's book, um, I think it was Outliers, where they, the, some museum had purchased a statue, and it was supposed to be a Roman statue, I think, and they spent a bunch of money on it, and one of the trustees uh, came to look at it, and they unveiled it, and she said, just without anything, she said, is, is the deal done? Can you back out yet still? And they said, no, yeah, yeah, it's done, it's done. She's like, oh, that's a shame. And they said, why? She said, well, because it's a fake. And they're like, mm-hmm. what do you mean it's a fake? How do you know it's a fake? She said, I don't know. It's a fake. <laughs> she didn't know. Uh, and then as she thought back on it, she sort of realized, oh, there was something about the nose. And she was obviously a scholar of this kind of work. Um, there was something in the nose that wasn't that wasn't right. That's not how they were, you know, made. And that was a situation of her expertise was, was so internalized that she was recognizing uh, something real right in front of her. Uh, when we're walking down the street, I think it's very difficult to discern how much of it is either a, a felt sense that's coming from legitimate information, how right. much of it is a felt sense that's coming from information that's been overlaid on our brains by media and movies and all that kind of stuff and stereotypes, and, yeah. and how much of it is just a sixth sense that we don't have any explanation for. Yeah. But worth worth asking the question right right the disentangling of of all of that and you know if you have a practice that that helps you do that disentangling and and understand senses in your body and try to 
to figure out, yeah, what, where am I just being uncomfortable versus unsafe? Um, yeah, those are all really great practices. All right. Well, we covered a lot. Yeah. What's What's next on your where you, where you headed to next, or how long you staying in Arizona? I am going to New Mexico on Thursday, Albuquerque first, specifically. I don't know exactly where after that. So, yeah, Albuquerque next, and uh, topic for next week is going to be money. So that should be an interesting one because I would say beyond the like, do you feel safe or, you know, a pretty girl like you shouldn't be traveling alone. That's not safe. Like (laughs) the other sort of top contender I get as reactions when I tell people what I'm doing is how can you afford to do that? So Yeah. yeah, I figured we could dig into that as well as, the racial wealth gap and, um, you know, the difference between income and generational wealth. Um, so, yeah, that's what's coming next. But um hope all of these questions and stories have uh, given folks things to chew on and feel into and think about. As I said, we don't have answers. <laughs> we... We have a lot of questions, though. Um, you know, we, I have takeaways, I would say. Um. All right. So the key takeaways I think we have are we should allow women to travel uh, solo if they would like, if they feel that calling. And, you know, they can always be aware of their surroundings. And, you know, if you are a man and you care about women's safety, you know, think about talking to other men about that, you know, if you understand what enthusiastic consent is, and what sexual assault is, and all other types of abuse and harm, you know, that can happen to women and non-binary folks, you know, talk to other men about that. Um, I think just having conversations can be really powerful. Um, And then, you know, whose stories do we prioritize and not just stories not just the resources that the media uses you know to highlight certain women that go missing particularly white women um you know but what are the resources that police forces use to try to find people once they they've gone missing um what are the resources that governments put into making communities of color and black neighborhoods safer um and and i think based on the programs that I've worked on with the government, safety starts with, you know, housing and food and jobs. Um, And so there's all sorts of ways that you can support policies that support safety writ large um, and, and how resources flow. And, you know, again, just when we are, you know, redesigning systems and transforming them and dismantling them, you know, having the people 
who have historically been furthest from safety be leading those charges and making sure that their safety is prioritized and and we all really do win um everybody including men you know i've had men in my life who have been assaulted really really badly and so we really when we're building this liberated society it really will benefit everyone um, but we need to, to put our dollars behind that and our votes and our policies and programs and resources. Um, and, you know, the final topic was that uncomfortable versus unsafe and just having some discernment about what you're feeling in your body and what is just a tape running in your head and conditioning and you know, uh, whether you feel unsafe or uncomfortable, wherever it is on that spectrum, like, what are you doing with that feeling? Um, are you putting someone else's safety in danger just because you're a little bit uncomfortable? You know, so I think as white women, like, we really need to be aware of how our safety has been then weaponized against black men in particular. Um, and so, yeah, just just really feeling into that uncomfortable versus unsafe and and what am i doing with this feeling and and wherever you are on that spectrum uncomfortable to unsafe you know also having practices to help you get out of the fight or flight mode that you might have felt um anything else on key takeaways i think you pretty much nailed it yeah, thank All you. Right. Um, Should we do a couple deep breaths to close us out? Good. Wherever you are, close your eyes if that's comfortable or just soften your gaze if that works better for you. And gently seal the lips. If you can, inhale through the nostrils, fill up your belly, your abdomen expanding, exhale, release the breath through the nostrils, inhale, once again, fill up like a big balloon, biggest breath of the day, exhale, let it all go. One more, inhale, feel the breath travel all the way down to the abdomen, a big belly, exhale, abdomen comes back towards the spine, letting go, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you, Kate. Have a great week and safe travel. Thank you. <laughs>